So t- tonight, uh, I've, I've titled the message, uh, Hold It Down, Hold It Down. You'll find out shortly what that's all about. <laughs> Brother, Brother Rich kind of has an, an insight into this a little bit. But all right, our, our anchor passage tonight is from Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 17. It says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, so usually when I, ch- when I choose an anchor passage, you know, I try to choose something that's uh, you know, encouraging, uh, moving, maybe even triumphant. Uh, this is not one of those passages. Uh, it's actually a, a major downer. And as we come to better understand what's going on here, it's even a bigger downer. But however, now perhaps uh, more than any other time, I think we really need to hear the difficult truth. So I want to back up just a bit and give some context here. So the book of Revelation was written by John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, same one that wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So during this writing, he was on the Isle of, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and uh, he was most likely working in a salt mine. But in this book, he is sharing a vision that God had given him concerning the unveiling of Jesus Christ, specifically talking about the second coming. And this vision is directly from Jesus. He's speaking to John. However, he doesn't begin with the prophecy of the second coming. He first wants to address the, uh, the Christian climate, if you will. Uh, he begins to dictate letters for John to relay to seven prominent churches in the area of Asia. And I understand there are differing interpretations of the context, the exact context of these letters. Uh, are they written to actual churches? Uh, are they written to us personally uh, as a modern-day churches? you know, in various conditions? Uh, are they generally prophetic in nature, telling us, you know, what struggles are to come before Christ returns? Uh, to that, I say yes. Uh, but, you know, it's probably a bit of all of that. Uh, but with that in mind, we'll, we'll proceed on. These letters start in chapter 2 and continue into chapter 3. We're going to be looking specifically at the letter to the church at Laodicea, the seventh Letter. So up to this point, Jesus has sent some words of encouragement to many of these churches. Uh, he's also given them some pretty straightforward areas of improvement. Uh, there's some warnings. There's some, you know, hey, just hold on. Things are going to get better. But now we get to the last church on the list. But Jesus starts this letter off with a declaration of and a reminder of who he is. You know, if you ever went to, if you remember when you were a kid, you went to the principal's office, or maybe as an adult, you go to your boss's office, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth, how the conversation starts, is this list of all their credentials. Like, I've been the president of this company for this long, or I've been principal here for this long, and they start saying all these things that they've accomplished. What do you know is coming after that? You're in trouble, right? So, and they're not, you know, your boss or your principal or whatever, they're not saying that to kind of boast about what they've accomplished, but what they're doing there is establishing authority, establishing authority. Just in case you forgot who's in charge, 
I just want to clarify that for you. That's what they're saying. And essentially, this is how Jesus starts this letter. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, amen simply means let it be so. This is an affirmation like a hearty, that's right. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in him, him being Jesus, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. As the son of the one and only living God, he affirms every promise made by the Father. God said it, Jesus is the amen. God says, I will save you from your sins. Jesus says, let it be so. The second thing he describes himself as is the faithful and true witness. What does a witness do? A witness confirms the truth of the matter. So Christ has given us the Holy Spirit as our guarantee as our guarantee concerning the work that he accomplished on the cross. So we look at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus finally describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was created by God. We know that Jesus was God, is God. He's saying that he has ultimate power over all creation. After all, he was there when it happened. He was the one doing the creating. John told us in his gospel account in John 1.1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Excuse me. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus establishes very clearly, with no room for interpretation, his power and his authority. If this isn't an attention getter, I'm not really sure what is. I imagine the ears of the church at Laodicea at this point were, uh, were probably pretty perked up. Now, now, I typically play out scenes in my head when I'm reading scripture. It helps me kind of understand what's going on. I kind of try to place myself uh, in, their, uh, in their situation, helps me kind of understand the context. Uh, sometimes I use a little artistic uh, liberty, but not to the detriment of the text, of course. Uh, but in this particular situation, I have to imagine what it was like for the Church of Laodicea to receive this letter. You know, they didn't have internet, they didn't have FedEx uh, back then. Messages took a bit of a time, uh, took a bit of time to get there. You know, they had runners. You know, if I was delivering this letter, it would have been a long time before you got this letter. So, you know, I can imagine kind of how this process went. But I, help, I can't help but wonder, because of course, you know, word travels faster than, than the feet. I can't help but imagine, did they get a heads up? On what was coming. Did they, did they hear that they had a letter from Jesus, but maybe didn't quite get what the contents of the letter is? And so I can imagine, and again, this is not scripture, but I just imagine that when they receive word of this letter coming, that uh, they're probably pretty excited. Right? Oh, great. We're getting a letter from Jesus. You know, Jesus said that uh, they believed that they were rich and in need of nothing. So I can imagine them saying, you know, hey, we're getting this letter from Jesus, guys. We're doing great. I bet Jesus is going to tell us how awesome we are. 
right? We haven't had to even call on him for anything. We got this Christianity thing just figured out. Then the letter arrives, and they read through the letters to all the other churches, and they come to their letter. And I imagine their heads dropping, tears welling up, maybe even some angry gritting of teeth. You know, guys, this letter isn't, isn't good. In fact, it's awful. Jesus said, we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, we make him sick. Now, when I was younger, maybe in my early teens or before, I remember a section of health class uh, where we kind of went through basic first aid. So they told us, you know, how to use an EpiPen, you know, basic kind of CPR stuff, the Heimlich maneuver, when to call 911, put pressure on a wound, you know, all those types of things. But they also told us about this, this drug that I always thought was very fascinating. Now, this drug is rarely recommended now, but when I was a kid, it was included in a lot of uh, first aid kits. And so this drug is called Ipecac. So if you know what Ipecac is, some of you are chuckling, so you know what it is. If you're not familiar with this drug, it is a liquid that has the sole purpose of making someone vomit. As soon as it hits your stomach, here comes all the contents of your stomach. Right? I always thought, wow, who came up with this awful drug? Drugs are supposed to make you feel better. The medicine's supposed to make you feel better, heal whatever, whatever is ailing. This one is made to make you sick. You know, and I understand the purpose of trying to get like a, a poisonous substance uh, out, and that's what it was used for. But just thinking about a drug that was literally made to make you throw up immediately after taking it, that's a crazy thought. Now, I can't help but think of the Church of Laodicea when I think of this drug. You know, lukewarm may not have as, as quite as an impactful meaning to us. You know, after all, we often hear, you know, kind of these weird fitness, uh, this fitness advice like, oh, you should drink lukewarm water because it's better for your metabolism or something, uh, you know, something strange like that. So for us, maybe lukewarm isn't quite as impactful, but the effects of Ipecac are very clear. Jesus was telling the church at Laodicea that they were like Ipecac. As soon as he encountered them, he wanted to throw up. The Greek word used here is it actually means to vomit. Now here we are, whether it be a specific, you know, written to a specific church at Laodicea or to, to us as the modern day church or to the Christian culture at large, Jesus still gives us the exact formula for his personal Ipecac, what makes him sick to his stomach. It's being lukewarm. It's being self-sufficient. It's having need of nothing. Maybe translated into our culture, it's being complacent. It's being complacent. Just the kind of, eh, whatever. You know, I want my Jesus, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to get crazy with it, right? I'm a self-made man. Uh, I got all of this under control. But just in case... I'm going to have Jesus here on the back burner, and if something goes sideways, then I can cover my bases. You know, I go to church on Sunday, I pray over my meal if there's nobody watching or I'm not in public, uh, slap a cool church logo on my bumper sticker, or excuse, church logo on my bumper, and uh, just for good measure, but uh, I just want enough Jesus to keep from burning, but that's it. If, if that's us... If that's where we're at, then we make Jesus want to throw up. 
I didn't say that. Jesus said that right here. But fortunately for us, he walks us through exactly what we need to avoid making Jesus throw up, to actually get him to hold his lunch down, hence the sermon title, Hold It Down. I also considered anti-epicac, but that was, that was kicked out. So <laughs> Jesus goes on in verse 18 to describe three things, to describe three things that will get us back into his intestinal good graces, if you will. Gold, garments, and eye salve. Now to us, these are seemingly unrelated items, random to us, but to the creator of all, they fit perfectly. So we start off with gold. Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Jesus clearly spelled out the problem here. He said, you believe yourself to be rich and have need of nothing, but you're actually wretched and poor. You see, the church at Laodicea needed to redefine what riches really were. They lived in a very affluent city. It was the center of commerce. Uh, earthly riches were really the, the god of this land, and they wanted to integrate this god of riches into the god. The worship of the God. And, you know, this reminds me a lot of the prosperity gospel that we hear of today. If I check all my religious boxes, if I do what I'm supposed to do, go where I'm supposed to go, wear what I'm supposed to wear, give what I'm supposed to give, then Jesus is essentially going to give me earthly riches and he's going to give me everything that my heart desires. According to the prosperity gospel, if I'm in the will of God... I will be rich. So to that last statement, I say amen, but Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 2.7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And lastly, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yes, as Christians, we are rich, but we must understand that the world's definition of riches is much different than God's. If we look at James chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, let's be, let's, I want to be clear about this. If you're rich, like, phys like physically and earthly standards, if you're rich, that doesn't mean that you're sinning against God. It's the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all evil. We learned that in 1 Timothy 6.10. But it's when we become dependent upon that money, upon those riches to define who we are and to give us our identity when our riches on this earth become our identity rather than finding our identity in Christ 
Therein lies the problem. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and dust and rust, excuse me, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys, or whether thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It was never about the money. It was about the heart. Jesus was defining true riches to the church at Laodicea. He was telling them, invest in me. I will not fail. Invest in Christ. This is an investment that will never depreciate. It only appreciates. How does interest accrual in eternity sound to you? That's a pretty good deal, right? Next, he talks about garments. Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So we look back to the beginning of creation. Man has long been in a state of nakedness and shame. In the garden, after Adam had eaten the forbidden fruit, God said, ask him what he was doing. And he replied in this Genesis 3.10, he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Because of sin, our natural state is nakedness and shame. But we tend to forget that. We begin to believe the lies of the enemy. We start feeling pretty good about ourselves. I'm a good person. I go to church on Sundays. I don't drink or swear or sleep around. Basically, no one could write a country music song about me. So I'm okay, right? What about the lie, you won't surely die, or you can be like God? Remember those lies? Do they sound familiar? The Pharisees in Jesus' time began to feel that same way. They said, I have followed the rules. I have avoided all those people that don't follow the rules. God is obviously pleased with me. I mean, look at what I'm wearing. Look at my friends. Look at my social status. But what Jesus has to say about them, in Matthew 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. They believe themselves to be rich and in need of nothing, just like the church at Laodicea. They had it all figured out, their rules, their loopholes, their shiny white exterior, but inside they were rotten to the core. You know, I, I used to have to get on to my son, Emmett, um, because when I told him to go wash his hands, I sent him to the bathroom, tell him to go wash his hands, he would take the water and turn it full blast, and he would take the tips of his fingers and run them under the water, turn the water off, and dry his hands off. Right? So if I wasn't there watching him, it sounded like he was washing his hands. It sounded like he would be clean when he came out, but Lord knows what kind of filth he was spreading around when he was doing that. And so the Pharisees and the church at Laodicea, they use their works, they use their possessions as detergent, uh, make, you know, something to make them clean or at least to make them appear clean. 
Uh, but these things accomplished about as much as my son running his fingers through the water and saying that his hands were clean. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, But we all are as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There's only one way to have truly white garments, to be truly clean. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In John 1, 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. Jesus is imploring the church at Laodicea to go back to that moment in the garden and consider that decision that was made that messed up everything. Don't follow that same path. Choose Jesus, the only one who could clean up that mess, the only one who could right that wrong. Lastly, he gives us ISAV. ISAV, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18 again. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with ISAV that you may see. This one I find particularly clever of Jesus. You know, as I said before, Laodicea was a hub for commerce. Uh, they were known for their banking, for their textiles, for their medicine, in particular, ISAV. This was the thing in Laodicea that they sold. And Jesus tells them, you need to try out some of this special ISAV that you're selling. Maybe it will open your eyes to see what is right in front of you. You know, you see yourselves through a worldly filter. You see there's no flaws, there's no imperfections, you don't see those. All your sin is outright hidden. But through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the kingdom of heaven, you are as messed up as messed up can be. Your priorities are messed up, your allegiances are messed up, uh, you're literally roaming around like a blind person in unfamiliar territory. In Matthew 23, Jesus again describes the Pharisees in the same way. It says, woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? We move down to verse 19. It says, you blind fools, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Move down to verse 24. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In verse 26, you blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside then may also be clean. In this one chapter, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind five times. You'd think that they'd get the point by then. He's telling them that their faith was misplaced. Their notion of power and authority was terribly misguided. They were placing their trust in themselves and their ability to live up to God's standards, when in fact, they were trying to live up to their own standards that they had created that didn't even come close to what God's standards were. 
If only Paul had been there to share his message in Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, For this reason, make every effort to add virtue to your faith and to your virtue knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control patient endurance and to your patient endurance godliness and to your godliness brotherly kindness and to your brotherly kindness love. For if these things reside in you and abound, they ensure that you will neither be useless nor fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the one who lacks these things is blind, short-sighted, because he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see. See what? The blood of Christ, his grace, his forgiveness, the sacrifice that he made for you. This vision should prompt you to live a life that points back to Christ. Peter says that this is what happens when you forget who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. You become useless and unfruitful. Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind... The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. I think Jesus was being a bit facetious here, but I trust the church of Laodicea got the point. Open your eyes to what, or rather to who, is right in front of you. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the only surefire way to avoid being lukewarm, to climb out of this pit of complacency, to not be ipecac for Jesus, is to invest in Christ. Not in the sense of working for our salvation. That will get us nowhere. It's about investing in Christ as your only guarantee for the future. The only one who can wash you clean. It's about setting your sights on Jesus, opening your eyes to the fact that you are a sinner in need of saving, a lost soul with a debt that only Christ could pay. He was the only one that had the funds to back it up, and that was his own life. Now, the letter to the church of Laodicea was pretty rough. Um, It had to be a hard read for them. It's a hard read for us. You know, they must have been devastated And I go back to my imagination when they're reading this letter for the first time, maybe the second time, maybe the third. says, guys, we we messed up. We messed up bad. We got this all wrong. Jesus must hate us. Maybe that was a thought that was going through their mind. Then someone coming from the congregation says, oh, wait, go back to that part right after the ISAV part. Let's read that part again. That's in verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcome, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Just imagine them saying, yeah, guys, he, he just said that he loves us, that he loves us. He only rebukes and chastens those who he loves, and we sure just got rebuked and chastened. Now, I think if we're honest, we can admit that we've all been at this place in some point in our walk. If you have a relationship with Christ, you've believed on him, you've put your faith and trust in him, uh, maybe you've even followed up in baptism, but you're just the kind of person that doesn't want to go overboard when it comes to Jesus. You're fine with saying I'm a Christian, uh, you're fine with claiming that, but when things really get tough, when it's time for you to stand up for something that's unpopular, uh, when there's risk of someone not liking you, Or it might affect your job, it might affect your relationships, uh, the kind of life that you're used to having. You'll just kind of keep that Christian stuff kind kind of down low. Let's not talk about that. Let's not bring that out into the light, right? If you really feel good about life right now, no real need for Jesus just yet. Things are pretty good. Uh, But I know I have him on the back burner just in case. If Jesus is your backup plan, listen to me. If this is you, if this is me, we make Jesus want to throw up. When I choose my own way, instead of his, I make him sick to his stomach. I want you to understand that, yes, this letter was addressed to a real church in a real place in a real point in time. And this letter is also addressed to us. All seven churches in, this, in the book of Revelations, they dealt with real problems, real people, real churches. But they were all addressed to us through the word of God that he has given us. Jesus follows these harsh words to the church of Laodicea with an invitation This invitation is to repent, to come back to him, to enjoy the blessings of this close relationship with your creator. Isn't it great that we serve a God that loves us in spite of our stupidity, in spite of our arrogance? He loved us to the point of death. Let's not make him want to throw up.